the giant thinkers. Giant thinkers. Giant thinkers podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. G'day, Giants. Welcome to episode number 86. Today's guest is an Emmy Award-winning designer, director, CEO, and chief strategist of Blind and the founder of The Future, an online education platform with the mission of teaching 1 billion people how to make a living doing what they love. He currently serves as the chairman of the board for SPJA and as an advisor to Saleshood. He has also served as advisory board member for AIGA LA, Emmy's Motion and Title Design Peer Group, Otis Board of Governors, Santa Monica College and Woodbury University. He's given talks and conducted workshops on a range of subjects, including sales, negotiations, value-based pricing, mindset, branding, graphic and motion design, social media marketing, entrepreneurship, business management, and client relations. Now, some of the topics we spoke about include how to bring your personal brand to life how to validate a feasible and viable idea and a potential audience, objection handling, building confidence as a public speaker and speaking to clients, and what scares him the most. So if you're someone that's interested in building, creating, and positioning a creative business, then this episode is for you. A quick note from me, I invite you to follow me on Instagram via my handle, TheGiantThinker, as I share daily posts and stories on helping decision makers like yourself, business owners, and leaders get unstuck through human-centered design methodologies, creative strategies, and personal experiences. Send me a DM. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on my handle, TheGiantThinker. All right, let's get stuck in. I present to you the loud introvert with a big mission, Chris Doe. Chris Doe, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast. I'm somewhat containing my excitement uh, to have you on the show. How are you today, my friend? I'm doing great. Good to talk to you. Fantastic. So to those listening, Chris is known and recognized for accomplishing many impressive achievements uh, in the world of design, education, and business. Uh, But what I really want you all listening to walk away with that's different to other interviews Chris may have done has uh, been really three things that I want you to, to really walk away with, which is the honest, vulnerable, deep, messy middle of how Krista got to where he is today. Second is around practical and actionable considerations to help you as a creative, revenue-generating, impact-driven entrepreneur moving forward towards your desired outcomes. And the third is to have some self-actualization to know where you are and where you want to be. So first off, Chris, I have an icebreaker question for you. I give all my guests an original icebreaker question. Uh, Yours is, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I ask, 
what scares you? What scares me is stagnation. Like if I don't feel like I'm growing as a person in my own development, in my business, I'm scared. And I'll be honest with you, in 2020, we we kind of plateaued in terms of our annual billings. It was two years in a row where we're hitting a certain ceiling and it does not feel good. And I know it was in the middle of the pandemic and I, I should be grateful and I am grateful for the business not had to lay anybody off and we're growing in different dimensions, but financially speaking, we were not growing and that doesn't sit well with me. Okay. We're going to probably dive into a bit of that. Thank you so much for sharing that, Chris. Um, Now for the listeners and great to hear directly from yourself, where would you say your expertise lies? (sighs) That's a really good question. You know, you know, this is going to sound contrary to a lot of the advice I give to people because I tell people go deep, uh, go go narrow and go deep, right? And and then they're like, well, but what about you? You talk about X, Y, and Z. So this is going to be one of those things where don't do as I say or don't do as I do, do as I say. Um, I, I guess the core of who I am is a person who understands graphic design principles. Uh, I consider my myself a pretty decent designer typographer. And that doesn't mean I design typefaces, but I know how to put type on a page to make it look good, to give it meaning and to make people pay attention to it. And those are my roots. And over the last 25 years, I've grown. So the, the, T, the T-shaped skill has expanded. The, the, the vertical stem has gotten thicker. And I add to that motion graphics, direction, like live action direction, storytelling, storyboarding, sequen- sequential design, branding. I, I've been in business for 25 years, so entrepreneurship. And in that time, I've learned about sales and marketing. And then what I've really discovered is people actually tune in for the stuff that I talk about in terms of mindset, belief systems. So I think that's the gamut there. So somewhere in between there, we can have a conversation. Yeah, I love that. And and I very much relate because I finished formal graphic design training. And yet, um, I feel like we have so much congruency and so much similarity in the path that we've chosen, which ended up uh, diving. Uh, I don't know if it was the inevitable, but I had come from the Ogilvy, the Makan, the Sachi and Sachi and the DDBs of the world. And I'm now so much interested in business and strategy, but what I learned back then still applies. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. And, and I'm sure the listeners, um, no matter where they are on their career path, might be able to to really um, see hope in areas where they might not because uh, I certainly, you know, didn't think that uh, I would be able to write the books or launch the businesses. And Chris, uh, we're going to dive into this because I want you to share a little about your childhood, how you grew up, uh, to give us a bit more context as to where the starting points were. What about the childhood do you want to know? Because I don't want to go on a story that doesn't help anyone. Sure. So look, um, if you don't need to do much digging to, to know you, you're originally from Vietnam. Yes. Uh, your, your, your background, your cultural background. Um, but what is it that maybe you haven't shared that has influenced where you are now? Maybe how, uh, maybe a moment or how your parents uh, responded to you at a young age? Were there any glimpses of creativity at a young age that perhaps uh, you nurtured? Mm-hmm. I, I think there are a lot, a lot of clues, but a repression of those clues. 
Uh, I would spend a lot of my free time going to the public library. You know, the library, it's a crazy concept for young people. You go to a place, you sign up for a library card and you can check out books. And I would check out books on how to draw. Uh, I remember uh, Stan Lee's book, uh, How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way. And I was just enamored and blown away by the level of drawing there. Of course, I think it was Sal Buscema and, and John Buscema who drew in that book mostly. And it's just their anatomy, the, the posing. It's just, it's just the classic book. I would I would also read um, the the what is it the Sunday cartoons in, in terms of a compilation of Garfield. Um, uh, I'm, I'm spacing like the Peanuts, uh, you know, the gang, and just like look at it and just look at storytelling. And I would draw and doodle all the time in junior high, Mr. Thompson's social studies class. I would get in trouble sometimes. He's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm just drawing." I'm just and he goes, "Okay, well, what's the answer to this question?" And I would be able to answer. He's like, "Okay, keep drawing then." And drawing was a way for me to escape my reality, to design a future. Oftentimes I would do these um, fashion sketches. Uh, I didn't know it at that time, but I was just drawing lots of poses. Just uh, trying to imagine some other life other than my boring, you know, uninteresting life. And I was just doing that. I was really interested in lots of things. Like I would look at um, magazines. Like my mom would get Sunset Magazine. It's like the California Lifestyle Magazine. Okay, it's not like the the... The, the gold standard for architecture and interior design. It's just like West Coast living. But I'd go through those magazines and I'll look at the way they did the gardens, uh, the landscaping, and then the homes. And I'll look at the molding and the and the, the drapes. And I, then I'll look at our boring house. I'm like, why don't we live like this? Like, is this a fairy tale? And I would start to become fascinated by these details and like how people live, the clothes that they would wear. And this is just all the fertile stuff of my imagination. Later on, it would become something but you don't get to connect the dots looking forward. Would you describe your lifestyle and standard of living as a particular way? I mean, you you grew up in California, if I'm not mistaken, but how, how was life growing up? Yeah, life in was that? strange. Um, life was sometimes difficult uh, because we moved around a lot. My parents uh, kept getting... Uh, better paying jobs and moved up in their station at the jobs that they were in. Ultimately, my mom worked at IBM as a designer drafter and she retired. And then my father, he worked as an engineer in a semiconductor company called Applied Materials. So we're kind of now going from at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder to the middle, not to the top, but upper middle. And we moved into a mostly white suburban neighborhood in South San Jose. And we lived in like what my friends would consider a fancy house. I didn't feel that because my parents weren't any different. They were still frugal. Uh, they, they, they never um, indulged in luxury goods and cars and things like that. But I was shocked one time when I had to fill out an application for in, in high school about our social standing. And I'm like, how, that's how much money mom and dad make? And so it was like a secret. And it was strange. So we lived um, very modestly, I believe, because my, my dad is a modest person. I'll give you a little personal story. Uh, Please, the 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 second car I bought for myself. The first car was a Honda Civic hatchback SE, and it had no options to like vinyl interior, auto, a standard manual, everything right. And that's the first car I bought for myself. The second car I bought for myself was a Mercedes CLK 430, and I got tired of that car. And so one day I'm like, I'm just gonna give it to my dad. I give my dad the car. And he's like, This is too much. I mean, it's an amazing machine. You turn it on, that you can hear the engine rumble. And he took it, and then a year later, he just got rid of it because 
he was not comfortable driving around in an expensive car. And you know what he bought? He bought like a minivan. That's my dad. <laughs> so that's, that's the, the world I grew up in. He's not comfortable. Wow. It costs a lot of money. Do you think some of those beliefs passed on to you? No, because I like expensive things. <laughs> my dad is very conservative fiscally. And he always told me growing up, work hard, earn an honest living, and don't take big risks. I work hard, but I take lots of risk. And it probably gives him an ulcer. I mean, not literally, but he's always like, oh, you, you really want to do this thing called YouTube? I'm like, dad, don't worry. Forget about those corporate clients. But he's like, you work so hard for that. And he couldn't understand it. You know, one time we were approached by a company who wanted to buy us. And the compensation package they laid in front of us was mind-blowing. I mean, I was like, shoot, this is a good deal. If I ever wanted to sell my company and lose my autonomy, I would sell. Just to give you some context, the salary that they're talking about is $400,000 a year, a $2 million signing bonus, and a lifetime payment like once you retire and if you work with a company a certain amount of time, I think it's like five hundred dollars or $400,000 a year for the rest of your life. You know, and they would pay me like $10 million for my business. <laughs> my dad's like, sell right now. I'm like, dad, you didn't even hear the details of this. He's like, why do you want this stress? And the number one reason why I want this stress, I want to be my own man. I want to make the decisions and I'm okay making less money for my autonomy. That freedom isn't free. It comes at a heavy price. So yeah, I chose the other path. Wow. Thank you so much for that context. It's, uh, it's important. Um, and I, the reason why I always ask about the upbringing and especially the culture piece and the parents and everything around that is I want people to see themselves in the people that I interview and, you know, there's no one else like you that I've interviewed and I scour for real honest stories. And part of this is also that, um, that, I want people to see the many different paths to progress. And in fact, you said something in there about your dad. My dad is exactly the same. And he, uh, in his age of 65, going on 66, he would still lawn mow to relax because he finds that more valuable to do it himself. And that whole thing, he will never pay anyone to, to do a service that he can do. Yeah, that's the old school mentality. And I, I have to tell everyone who's listening to that, though, this is what I really need you to understand. Here's a life lesson for you, okay? The number one and most valuable non-renewable resource that you have is your time, period. And if you can pay someone else to do something that costs less than what it costs you to do it, you should pay them. First of all, it helps the economy. It's how we all grow. And we, we want to not only receive opportunity, we want to create opportunity. But I'll give you an example. I'm working on this project, Weekend Warrior Style. I want to build a shelf for all my books. It's right up over here. And I have to install the shelf. So I decide I'm going to go to the, the local lumber yard, buy some wood and have them cut it for me. I'm in the garage sanding, coating, and my back is hurting. I'm hunched over. I'm giving up hours of my life building this dumb bookshelf so I can get my books up. And my wife's like, what's going on? I'm like, I hate this project. I should have just paid a carpenter to do their job and they're good at it. It would have been done by now. And I could concentrate on other things like, oh, I don't know, read this book on cognitive engagement. And I can't. I can't <laughs> open this book because this project is killing me right now. 
And so it's something you want to think about. She goes, honey, don't you like doing woodworking projects? I said, I do, but I got more important things to do right now. And I don't have all the tools, which makes it really painful. I completely, I completely agree. Um, so Chris, we're going to dive into uh, some other aspects uh, now that we've gotten some, some wonderful um, insight there from how you grew up. Uh, we're going to start here. For, for those that are stuck in articulating their personal brand proposition, really stuck on, on that. Like I find that there's a lot of generic copy articulations or art articulations that are just so vague. So for those that are stuck in articulating their personal brand proposition, where might they start? How might they bring their personal brand to life? Okay. So there's two parts to this question. I want to, I want to deconstruct for everyone. Okay. You said personal and then you said brand. So we'll try to take this apart. When you're talking about branding, you're talking about a person's gut feeling about a product service organization. So it's a feeling and the feeling is made up of a number of impressions. Okay. So when you're talking about a big company like Apple, it's not the product, it's not the logo, it's not Steve Jobs. It's not the Apple store or the operating system. It's all of those things put together. And then if they do this consistently enough over time, then enough of us will start to have an impression of who Apple is and we start to develop a feeling, right? So if you get into brain science stuff, it's the limbic part of your brain. There's the neocortex and there's the limbic part. The limbic part is the emotional. It's the part that makes all the decisions. It's actually the really important important part. So there's science behind this. When we say gut feeling, we're not talking about literally in your gut, but in your limbic brain, you form an emotional attachment or a decision about something. Okay, so that's branding. So when we say about people, everybody here, everybody listening, no matter how old or young you are, you already have a brand because people have feelings about you already. So if you are the, the eager person who always shows up on time at work, you're known as the eager beaver. Always on time. Timmy never lets anybody down and we can count on Timmy. And if you're like uh, lazy Lance and you show up late and you barely do enough work, your lunch breaks are really long. Well, then you also have a personal brand and people are like, God, when are they going to fire Lance already? Because I'm doing all the work that Lance isn't doing. Now, here's the thing. We want to be more intentional with the impressions that we create in the world. My friend, Christine Lucer, who, who teaches at the Minerva School, she talks about impression management. So impression management means that we, you wear your Emporio Mani glasses because it, it creates this vibe like, hey, I'm a designer. You know, I'm nearsighted, presumably, because I work with computers all the time. And sometimes people look at people who wear glasses as more intelligent because the old thing was like, you know, you're, you're a bookworm. You read lots of books and therefore your vision is limited, right? And, and maybe you're, you're like really artistic. There's all kinds of things. You're, you're, you've got the wireless earpods and AirPods, right? So all these things create an impression and choosing that brownish, I don't know if that's suede, you know, are you rocking suede right there? It is. It is. Uh... <laughs> all of these things create an impression. Okay. And so what we want to do is we want to manage the impression. So you got to think about all the things in which you come in contact with the real world. If you start to think about it and make better decisions, people's impression of you starts to change. 
like I, I, I rock the flat rim hat, right? And some people think I'm, I'm trend chasing, whatever. I'm too old to be wearing it. It's like, says you, I don't care. I'm also wearing it because of utility. I have oily skin. This light on here, it'd just be a giant mirror and hotspot. You wouldn't even be able to see my face. So I have to put on the hat, okay? <laughs> Especially at this time of the day for me. And so I create an impression too. So all of you out there, first, be more intentional in the way that you move around the, around the world. The things that you say, the things that you do, the, the decisions that you make say something about you, including the brands that you buy and wear and use. Okay. So if you want to be more intentional, the other thing you want to do is think about your two-word brand. Talked about this in multiple uh, clubhouse calls before. A two-word brand. And I like to do the saints and sinners exercise, which is if, if, if your fans and the people who support you, who love you, what words would they describe you? This becomes your core. Because remember, it's impression management. So what they say? They say, uh, Ram is really a thoughtful person. He's a generous person. And they would go and you would write this really long list. And then the sinners list is the, of all the critiques, the people who want to uh, lovingly support you, but don't always say it in the right way. What would they say about you? And so you look for those two words and you smash them together. And I find words that are polar opposites, the kind of um, paradox, if they hit together, you know, like an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp, it, it makes it much more memorable. So for me, my personal brand is I'm a loud introvert. And that started to stick with some people. Some people refer to me as a charming razor blade or intentional fire. They just, they, or disciplined fire. They have all these kinds of strange words, two words put together, find your unique two word combination. I don't think there's an infinite number of words, but there are a lot of words. And when you, when you add the ability to combine any two words, it's exponentially greater. You can almost say it's almost an infinite combination of two words. So don't be generic and don't be vague and don't be derivative where you just copy someone else's words. Find words that work for you. Solid. Love that. I wasn't sure where you were going to go with that because you have so much knowledge on personal branding and working with so many other people who probably ask you that question. So I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to give um, really succinct starting point there yeah. and something that I actually uh, have never heard from anyone else. So Chris, you're delivering. <laughs> um, thank you. Now I wanted to ask you about something that's not too directly connected to that, um, but it's around this other area of uh, the research phase in an idea. I mean, the world's certainly not in a shortage of ideas. Um, we are in a shortage of action takers. But between idea to action, uh, as, as, as many designers and creatives are aware, there's an important research phase there. What does your research phase look like when you validate a desirable, feasible, viable idea? How, how do you validate your ideas? Uh, the best way I know how to validate an idea is to, to make it as an MVP, a minimum viable product, and put it out into the universe and see is this as good, as smart as I think it is? And I will not know because human beings are unpredictable. I'll give you an example. So many people know us from our YouTube videos and uh, we've made probably over a thousand videos now. A thousand videos over the course of seven years. Okay, we're going on seven years now of making content. Okay, not all of the videos are viral monster hits. Actually, a very small percentage of them are a very small percentage of those thousand videos actually crests above a hundred thousand views. A couple of them, just a few are over a million views. And one of them is over 10 million views. And what, what am I telling you all that stuff for? 
It's because we have a lot of at-bats. We, we make a lot of swings over home plate and we miss a lot of balls that are pitched at us, right? But we only need a couple of them to hit to change the game for us. So one, one of these videos, the 10 million viewed one recently, it was, it's only released in the last month and a half, has over 30,000 subscribers attached that. Put in context, I think it took us over two years to get to 30,000 and actually two and a half years before we got there. And so we don't know when the hits come. All we know is we have an idea. We're going to try it. If it works, we try to replicate our success and we do it over and over again. It is the antithesis to how many creators create videos. A lot of creators will sit down and release one video a month and labor on it for 28 days until the, the baby's ready to be delivered. We're not like that. I tell my team, just keep making bad work because in there we're going to learn so much more. And in the, in the um, process of creating bad work, we will find things that do work and we'll learn from that experience. So I believe take a lot of little small steps for you to have one big kind of aha moment. So good. So good. Now, Chris, what do listeners uh, do from a point of, okay, I, I have an idea, I've created an, an MVP, or I'm, do, I'm, I'm distributing, I'm, I'm, I'm delivering it into the world, um, whether it's, let's use the example of creating videos, um, how do they know who their audience is? That's another area. Who is my true audience? And let's take it further. Of that audience, who is my true customer? How have you navigated this now that you've got a lot of different offers in the market? People listening might be also wondering how they might be able to convert into turning what they are producing into uh, a viable business. Yeah, there's a couple of different models that you can use. You can say, well, I'm a unique person, but in the world, I'm not that unique. And there might be 20, 30, 100,000 people who have the exact same interests that I do. And you can start there. You can just say, I love to make drawings of skulls. I'm not saying that that's what I love to do, but if that's your thing, just draw a bunch of skulls and see what happens and see who shows up for you, right? And then you attract an audience just like you. Uh, if you want to be a little bit more scientific and, and you're trying to figure out what audience you want to serve, you're going to, you're going to look for something that binds people together. It's a worldview, a way of a belief, and that binds people together. There are coffee lovers and there are people who like hot sauce, right? There aren't a lot of fans of mustard, but there are people who love hot sauce and, and, and coffee. So you're like saying, okay, so we really care about coffee and we're super passionate about it. And actually, you know that because the market is seemingly very crowded but very niche too there's the people who do the uh, bulletproof coffee and then there's the starbucks people and there's there's the sanka instant coffee people so there there's a whole gamut of them and so if you find something that's common that brings people together a tribe if you will you try to see like okay i like this so seth godin talks about this right he's like you want to be able to find your smallest viable audience your sva the smallest amount of people that you can serve that shares a worldview. And if you can find those people, start to serve them. And that's where I like to start. There's lots of things that I like. Well, who cares what I like? Dale Carnegie, who wrote the book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, he says, like, I like strawberry cream ice cream or something like that. And he goes, but when I go fishing, what I like has nothing to do with it. 
I think fish like worms and they don't like strawberry cream ice cream. It just doesn't make sense. So here's where I sit around and I say, okay, what does the world need? And I'm, I'm trying to be an observant human. And I say, well, the world needs world-class education, okay? And is there enough of it? And is it too expensive? Is it too little? The world also needs a way for teachers to make a living based on their intellectual property. As a teacher, I taught for 15 years. As soon as I stop teaching, I make no money. All the prep work, all the lessons I've learned, they go away unless I'm able to do something. So I look at these two worlds and I say, well, why don't I just put these two worlds together? Students need world-class artists and designers who are dynamic, engaging teachers. And teachers need incredible students who want to learn, but they also want to be able to profit from their own ideas. So when we, when we built the future, it's to serve these two types of people. And then we ask bigger questions about like, who are these students and who are these teachers? And we keep testing the hypothesis until we discover who it is we're serving. Fantastic. And so I love that. Um, the, the decision-making around thinking about buying versus actually buying. What have you discovered about people's decision-making around that? Because a lot of the times when we talk about, you know, uh, the design process, reverse engineering and outcome, uh, you know, customer acquisition journeys, um, you know, where do they enter? Where do they consider? Where do they drop off? What have you found as the, whatever comes to mind, but whether it's one thing, whether it's a few things, but what is the buying decision traits that you have found in, in patterns, perhaps you can use the future as an example. So once you've got that hypothesis, fair, what are people doing who are landing and considering and those that go all the way and go, take my money? Yeah. Well, first of all, you need to be able to find a problem. So I'm in the business of finding problems. The bigger the problem the more money people will pay. So first find a real problem, a problem that is being ignored or not wholly satisfied in terms of like the answer to the problem. Okay, so if, if it's like that, that expression, scratch your own itch. So if something is bugging you, and it usually starts there for me, if something's annoying me about stuff, and then it's like, okay, I think there's a problem here. And then the first thing you should do is like try to research and find your own answer. It's like, does it exist? What does it look like? And if it exists, can you do better in it? And what's going on? Okay, so you got to find the problem, then you create the solution for the problem. And then you charge a fair price. A fair price is something where you the amount of money somebody pays is less than the value that they get. So I think Grant Cardone said this is like when value exceeds price, people buy. So now let me put that whole framework to for an example for you. Okay. I created a typography course, not because I wanted to create a typography course. I created one because I was annoyed. I was annoyed that I was bringing in my design interns who came from different schools who weren't schooled in a school of type. And so I had to teach them while I was paying them to work for me. And after a while, I'm like, this is freaking annoying. I need to systematize this so that they can just learn on their own. And that was then when I started to think, maybe my design interns aren't the only people in the world who need this. And in fact, because I'm a design snob and you might be one as well, I look at all these designs from so-called professionals, from people who have been trained in design, and they suck. And they're terrible. So I'm like, okay, maybe this problem is bigger than I think. 
And so then I go and start to craft a solution for that problem, which is my typography course, because I did some research. I looked around. There aren't many people in the space. And when I released my, my course, I couldn't find a single one. I'm not saying they didn't exist, but to the extent in which I could search, I could not find a decent design typography class. And so I taught it. To this day, it's earned us over $700,000 from one course that I recorded in four weeks. So that's that's how you do it. That's how you, so that's going to influence the buying decision because I need something. I don't have a good solution for it. And if you can charge me a fair amount where I see greater value in what I pay, I'm going to buy. And that's what people do. They buy the class. So Chris, on that wonderful example, and I'm sure everyone understood that very clearly in terms of the insight based on real-time actual uh, information gathering from the scenario that you were exposed to. But how do you qualify leads worth pursuing when we talk about actually distinguishing can you share to us a bit about that bit? Feel free to use that example or, or anything else that comes to mind about qualifying leads worth pursuing. Yeah, because we have a product-based business, the only qualification is, do you have the 150 or $250 to buy the class? Because if you have it, then you get to buy it. When we're running a service design business, it's almost always going to come down to the same thing, is can you afford to hire us to do what it is that we do? And so as we become more mature and we become more established and experienced in what we do, our prices tend to go up. And so a lot of times when I'm talking to a prospect, I want to make sure they can afford us. So I'll say at the very beginning of the conversation, before we go down this rabbit hole, because I'd love to talk to you, but I assume your time is precious because I know mine is, is do you have $30,000 to start talking about strategy? And they're like, yes, we do. We can keep talking. But at that point, it's too late because I'm already talking to them. I've already given up my time. So let's rewind the tape a little bit, okay? So when they come to find us, usually, say, through many different ways, but they land on our website to get our phone number, to get our email address, I want to create what I believe is a site that mirrors our value. So when they see it and they see big brands like Audi and Xbox and PlayStation, they're already getting scared because they're seeing really big, high-profile brands brands with really top shelf work, if I do say so myself, and they look at the work like, ooh, this is going to be expensive. So we're having people disqualify themselves, like we can't afford this. And in fact, when we send out copies of our demo reel to some people, they, their response is, we can't afford it. I'm like, we haven't even talked about price. Like we already can tell we cannot afford it. So that gets rid of a lot of the bottom feeders, the tire kickers, who are just poking around wasting your time. So by the time we get on a call, we know that they can afford it because we try and scare them away. I hope the listeners are taking notes. This is gold, my friend. Um, now, what's a common objection you've handled, Chris, in your business that we might be able to learn from? The classic example that we get is you don't, you don't have enough experience doing this one thing that we do. Let's say, for example, I, let's say I make commercials or I do a dog food packaging. They'll say, well, you don't have dog food packaging for this breed of dog. I'm like, are you kidding me? Or actually, we're a cat food company, or we, we actually do fish food, you know, for your aquarium. I'm like, oh, I, I can. So that's going to be very common, right? So people don't hire you uh, unless they feel like you have enough expertise. 
And so that's an objection. You don't have enough experience in this. And I put that in air quotes. You don't have enough experience doing this. And, and the way that I usually am able to overcome that is in conversation. First of all, you have to be talking to the decision maker, right? And so I'll give you a couple, like this is going to be a little generic, a little wide, okay? Because I'm not really dealing with a client right now. I would say something like, I'm just curious why you called us. I know we're not a good fit. I'll just bring it up right away. And then they now then have to justify to themselves more importantly and to me why they call this. And they'll say something like this. Uh, you come highly recommended. We asked around. People say you're really good. And we actually looked at your portfolio. Even though you don't do what we do, it's really strong. I said, well, that's fantastic then. So I know I, I lack the experience in this, but I got to tell you something. Every time another client has called us and asked to do it for the first time, we've been down this road and we consistently do this all the time. So if you look through the entire portfolio here, you'll see that there are a bunch of very different kinds of projects. And in fact, we were the first uh, first company to make a commercial for Crate and Barrel. Uh, same thing with Quicksilver. We were the first, uh, we worked on a music video that was first to hit on the charts as a digital release for a band called Gnarls Barkley for a song called Crazy, right? So we do a lot of first things. So if you like to work with people who move in that space, of coming up with innovative solutions for companies like yours, then we're a good fit. If you want someone who has deep experience doing what it is that you do and you want what they produce, hire them. So good. I love that example. And uh, right there is somewhat of a, a wonderful script that people might be able to at least uh, begin the conversation with. <laughs> um, Chris, what is... Well, I'll put it this way. How do you define value-based pricing? Now, we all know you, you uh, just demonstrated a bit of even that conversation there. Um, what's the best way we can increase believability and substantiate our value in the market that we're in? Okay. I want to talk to you that there are at least three pricing models that you can be a very successful practitioner of creative services without doing value-based pricing. I understand for a lot of people, it's the holy grail it is for me. It's like the thing we all should should lust after and try to achieve sometime in our life, but it's not necessary for you to be successful. In fact, I think the first um, 15-ish years of running my business, I was not doing value-based pricing, okay? And so I just want to do that. So first, you charge by the hour. So you're charging based on the inputs, right? How much material and time you spend on something and you start at the bottom and you work your way up until your hourly rate becomes really, really high. In fact, my hourly rate for consultation is $1,500 an hour. Okay. Which is a lot of freaking money. I, I realize that. Okay, everybody. Okay. So the next way you charge is because the clients say, okay, Chris, that's fine, but you charge 1500 bucks an hour. What guarantees do I have about results? I'm taking all the risk here, man, because if you spend a thousand hours, that's a lot of money. I said, it's fair enough. So you want me to do a fixed base price and that's called charging for outputs. Based on what I deliver, I would charge you something. And this is actually a very good hybrid model between charging hourly and doing value-based pricing. So everybody understands that, right? So uh, charging a fixed fee, I'm not gonna calculate the hours. I'm gonna have clear definition of scope, scope of work, like how many, how long, for what applications, what's the usage rights, et cetera. And you, you figure that out and then you, you come up with a price and you generally, and it's understood by people, generally charge anywhere between 30 to 80% more than if you did it hourly because now you're taking the risk. So the clients 
are a little bit indecisive or the scope is a little bit different than what you expect, you're going to eat it in the shorts and you're going to lose money. So then, because because we take the risk, we charge more. Now, value-based pricing, to get to the heart of your question, is one where it's fair for both the, the buyer and the seller. It only works when we both agree that it's fair for both of us. And the best way I know how to to describe this is I'm looking for a big problem to solve. Do you have a big problem to solve? So Ram, you might say, yeah, you know what, Chris, um, our customer, um, our gener- what is it? Our lead generation is way down. Our customer acquisition costs are going through the roof. I say, of all those problems, what's one problem you think you need to work on? And you might say, well, customer acquisition. I say, I say so what does that mean? And we will talk about it. And then I would say, so if this goes well for you, what kind of net gain would you have? And you're just like, well, if we fix the things that I know we can fix, Chris, we can probably make an additional $2 million in revenue this year. I said, fantastic. Is this a problem you want to solve? You're like, yes, it is. How much money do you want to spend against that $2 million? And your mind is going to be as little as possible. I agree. You should spend as little as possible. So does like 20% of the $2 million that you're talking about, does that make sense to you? And you're like, well, 20%, that's pretty reasonable. You get to keep 80 and you'd spend 20 to do it. And anytime you can tell someone, spend 20 bucks to make 80 bucks, they should do that deal all day long, right? And if somebody offers you a deal where you spend 50 bucks and you make $52, you should do that deal all day long if it's guaranteed. But this isn't guaranteed, so that's why it's only 20%. If we're guaranteed, it'd probably be 90%, right? So it's about risk tolerance there. So 20% of 2 million, I think 10% of 2 million is 200,000. So 20% must be 400,000 if my math is okay. So Ram, are you willing to spend $400,000 to land $2 million of additional revenue for this year? And that's where the conversation, usually there's some back and forth and we can then put a proposal together, but that's how you do value-based pricing. Love it. I mean, this is absolute gold and it really goes towards this other area, right, of negotiation in many ways. Um, One thing that I wanted to touch on, though, um, was for those starting out and we're talking, starting out as in, let's let's make it very clear because I get this all the time, uh, people who have worked a full-time job and they want to work for themselves, they want to pursue that path, finally, work for myself, own my own business. All right. That sounds great. So for that person who doesn't have a team, doesn't have a salesperson, has never worked in sales actually. And they want to, they want to secure their first four clients this year. What are they doing to help their conversation? Exactly what we were diving into a little bit. Got it. Does this person still have a job or no? This person does not have a job. Okay. So urgency is really paramount right now because you're burning money and every day that goes by, your runway gets shorter and your sense of urgency and sense of scarcity increases, right? So it's more urgent. So let's make some assumptions here, if we will, for this kind of very broad-based question. I don't love that idea that you're not working, you're not gainfully employed, and you're just going to jump out into the universe without a parachute, without a runway, and you don't know how to land. These are very difficult things to do because it makes you desperate. Unfortunately, a lot of people out there who are listening to this are in that exact situation. Uh, David C. Baker, he, he wrote in his book, uh, The Business of Expertise, uh, and he says that there's no way that I can predict confidence 
But one thing I do find that's common with a lot of the entrepreneurs I speak to is that if the number of opportunities divided by your capacity to do the work is high, the ratio, the confidence scale goes up. So if you have one opportunity, but you have a lot of free time, one out of five, your confidence is one fifth. But if you have 10 clients who are calling you, but you only have the ability to do two projects, your confidence score is five versus one fifth. Everybody understand that? So what we want to do is we need to increase the number of opportunities relative to to our capacity to do the work. How do we do that? How do we do that? Okay. People hire who they know, like, and trust. That makes sense. I can't hire you if I don't know you. I'll just hire the next person that I find. And if I know you, but I don't like you, I prefer to work with someone more compatible with me. If I know you and I like you, but you do something shady because you don't know how to talk about business, money, deliverables, you're sending me all the wrong signals, I don't trust you, I still might hire you, but my odds of being hired are much, much lower. The most difficult part to this three-part chain is what? You got to get known first. Without getting known, you have no other opportunities. So we all, regardless of what you do, website design, logo design, brand strategy, keynote presentations, deck design, whatever it is you do, you have to become a marketer first. Now that's going to make a lot of people freak out. But you need to understand, you don't need to be afraid of the word marketing because you've been marketing all of your life. Just not the way that you think. You're not running Facebook ads. You're not doing SEO, SEM stuff. You've been marketing because who you are, the work that you do, the reputation that you create is marketing. You're trying to change people's opinion about something, right? If you came in here with a different color jacket, different glasses, you're marketing a different thing. And I just didn't arbitrarily put on this hat. I had several hats. I have many hats and I'm marketing to you right now. Okay. And marketing is persuasion. So we can start to learn the dark arts of marketing. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to enter this into the exhibit for our discussion. Seth Godin in his book, This is Marketing, says marketing is an act of generosity. It's a generous act of you helping other people get what they want. Well, you have to ask yourself, who are these other people? What is it they want? So we have to get into understanding user personas, user profiles. We have to say like, what kinds of people are most likely to be the people who are going to buy the things that I make? Where are they falling short? What are my competitors not doing or who's ignoring them? I'll give you an example. Now, when we think of fitness, okay, we think of gyms, we think of big hulking masses of people, and maybe one of the most famous gyms, uh, at least out here in America, is Gold's Gym. That's where Arnold goes to pump iron, right? That's where all these big, super freak human beings go to get really super buff. But what if I don't like that? What if I'm intimidated by that? Well, there's this other company called Planet Fitness and their their gear isn't like crazy. Their gear is painted purple and yellow. And when you join a Planet Fitness program, they buy you a box of pizza. They serve pizza when you join. They're like, what kind of... So their whole thing is no judgment and they have a slogan, no gym intimidation. No gym intimidation. They said no lunks, no lunking. Like, so if you wear those tank tops, you're not allowed to work out there. And if you pick up iron, you can't be like, oh, you can't be making those sounds because that's intimidating. So this is a very welcoming place. No body shaming. And the prices are very affordable because they know something. You're not going to show up. You're just not going to show up. That's it. 
So you don't pay enough to show up. And so they have a whole different market and their business is in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So they found a very specific audience and they're going to help them. So people just want to feel like every once in a while to uh, keep up with my New Year's resolution or after a giant Thanksgiving dinner, I can feel a little bit better about myself by going to the gym for 15 minutes. That's their business model. It seems to work. So for every market or audience out there, they have a different need. And that group of people were not being served well. So you, as a person who's just starting out, need to find your market, meet them where they're at, and give them something that'll help them go from where they are to where they want to be. And just remember, it's the emotional part of who we are that makes all the decisions. Understand what motivates them, and you'll be able to sell to them. Boom. That's fantastic. And Chris, this ties in. So you've covered that so well. Thank you. The especially where people can arrive at conversations knowing who they serve, who they don't. That's a huge part. The confidence also comes with that. But how did you build your confidence in, in a different way in terms of you as a public speaker in terms of you being on camera, uh, whether it be pitching to high stakes clients or on stage in front of thousands of people, you mentioned that you were a loud introvert. So how did you build your confidence speak specifically as a speaker? As a speaker. Okay. I'm not a confident speaker. I have to say that it's something I've had to work on very hard and it's taken a long time to get here. And when you look, uh, when you look back, all the parts seem really clear. So that's all I can do. Like, like I've said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. That's Steve Jobs thing, right? And so when I look back, it's like, you know, when my, my business coach said, I think you need to talk to the clients. This is crazy that you hide from your clients. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. I learned how to speak to clients. Even though we have a thriving business, multi-million dollar business, I still don't like to talk to clients. Actually, I just don't like to talk to people. Let's just be clear, especially clients. Okay. Because <laughs> my, my team and they're doing hundreds of thousands of dollars in terms of like a job with us. And a part of it is the expense that we as a company have to pay for. Like we need to take the clients out to a nice fancy dinner. And these dinners aren't like a $30 plate. They're spending a couple hundred bucks a person. And then Chris, just come and eat good food with us. You don't need to talk to the clients. As, as much as I'm motivated to eat really good food that I'm paying for, I don't even go. I just skip out. Okay, Ram. So I'm like, well, I don't want to go. So that little act of learning how to talk to clients made me feel a little bit more comfortable around people. And then my coach says, uh, I need you to volunteer at some school thing that you're going to do and talk about design. People need to hear your voice. I'm like, oh, so I do that and it's terrible and it's really terrible. And then my friend Jose is like, hey, Chris, let's go. Let's make some YouTube videos. I'm 42 years old at this point, by the way. I'm like, oh, YouTube? Really? Me? People don't want to see an ugly face like mine. They don't, especially don't want to hear my stupid voice. He's like, just, let's just do it. And then you say, you know what? What I got to lose? Who cares? Then you go for it. And you suck. And when I say you suck, I mean I suck. I don't know what to say. But over time, you start to build this thing up. And over time, you get a little bit more comfortable. I bombed a couple of times at a keynote. My, my deck, uh, none of the notes made it over. I was like, my voice was trembling. I spoke against like powerhouse speakers. You know what I'm talking about, Ram. And, and you're like, <laughs> I used to watch that person from the stage. I'm speaking after that person? No way. And then the imposter monster steps on your face and it's like, oh, I don't, I just want to run for the exit door. 
And I don't feel like I'm humiliated, but I feel like, oh, this is terrible. So I got to go back to the drawing board. And then my business. So that, yeah. That, sorry to interrupt you, Chris, that moment, that's terrifying for people. Like people do not want that. Nobody wants that. <laughs> I mean, everything How that did you... go wrong went wrong. I just laid out the perfect, what they, what is it called? A, a, a perfect storm, right? Like your notes get destroyed. I send them the presentation and then the fonts aren't working. I sent it to them, uh, you know, days before they didn't even bother checking, which pissed me off. So I'm trying to recreate the notes by hand on a piece of paper. This is like in a darkened room and then powerhouse speakers speak before you and they're going to be powerhouse speakers after you. So you're like, I'm dog trash compared to them. And then they do a great presentation. They nail the landing, you know, perfect 10. Then you go up, you're like, hello, uh, my name is Chris. And I sees me. You know, and then your voice cracks, you know, when you're 40 years old, it's not a good sign. And I'm, I'm like breathing like funny erratically, you know, I've got a lot of air gas trapped in my throat. So I'm burping. And it's like, this is terrible. It's bad. And so I just, I'm looking at the timer. It's like, can it go any faster than this? Or is this it? And then you get off and everybody's like, oh yeah, you, you did all right. They give you that, that pity bat, uh, back pat, you know, it's like patting you on the back, like the pity kind. And you're like, I don't want, I'm leaving. I got to get out of here. But then my, my coach, thankfully, I'm like, his name's Kier. I'm like, Kier, I sucked. How do, how, I don't want to do that again. He's a kid, stick in it. Stay there. I'm going to tell you what. Only speak about the things you care about. Okay? Things that you know about, things that you're passionate about. And don't worry about what the slides are supposed to be. Just say whatever's from your heart because I know you'll be okay. So I'm like, okay, put me back in. So I do another one. It's not as bad. And it just gets a little bit better. <laughs> Two years later, I remember I'm in Seattle. I'm at a conference speaking uh, with an Adobe thing. And I go do my talk. I'm cracking jokes. I feel like I'm funny. I'm making fun of people. It feels pretty good. And as soon as I get off stage, I call my wife. I'm like, honey, you won't believe it. I wasn't nervous for the first time. That's like two and a half years later. Wow. It's a whole process, man. Love it. So a question I ask all my guests, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to junior Chris Doe, perhaps the youngster finishing high school, what would you tell him? Finishing high school. Okay. I'm going to tell him, go all in on this thing called design. Don't worry. Everything will work out and get on the, every social media platform. There's this thing that's going to be called YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Just get all, get on all of them and start making content. <laughs> Don't be afraid. See you in the future. Who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life, Chris? That person who has inspired you to think bigger, to dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential. Um, I'm going to mention my business coach. He's a big part of my life. I worked with him for over 13 years. His name is Kier McLaren. In terms of people that I've, I know from afar, not up close, Seth Godin, on, I've read many of his books. Jim Rohn, the godfather of all this business philosophy stuff. Um, and there's so many more, like I get to, I get the pleasure of reading a book and then talking to authors who have shaped a lot of my thinking. Of course, there's Blair Enns, there's David C. Baker, there's Douglas Davis. That's the name of few. And then Michael Bungay Stanier. But you just listed my favorite people just there, obviously excluding your business coach who I don't know, but <laughs> wonderful. So Chris, what's next for you in the next 12 months, everything you're involved in, the stuff that you're building, uh, what what can we expect from uh, from your creations, my friend? Yeah, I want to use a line from uh, Toy Story to infinity and beyond. That's what's in the future. But I do want to say something here. 
uh, there are a lot of people who don't get to know who I am. They see this guy on a video and sometimes I'm a little bombastic. I'm over top. Sometimes I'm aggressive, not having a good day, had too much tea or something, and I get really aggressive. That if you get to know who I am, there's a lot more here because we're all very complex human beings. And if you catch any one of us on any given day, you might walk away with the wrong impression of a person. And I would just say, if I've bugged you in the past, give me a shot, lean into some of the content, watch a couple of things, and I'm here to help you, to serve you, and to support you. I'm in the business of helping other people achieve their dreams. And if somebody wants to do a little deeper dive with me, there's this thing, it's called the Future Pro Group, which is a paid community of 460 creative people from all over the world. Come, come join us. So good. And Chris, how can listeners get in touch with you online? Okay, you can go to thefuture.com. The future, uh, if you were to read it, it, you might read it as Futur because there's no E. It's F-U-T-U-R, thefuture.com. My name is Chris Doe, so you can find me everywhere on social media at the Chris Doe and Doe is spelled D-O. So good. Chris, you have been beyond uh, amazing. You are an absolute gentleman and I'm so glad we were able to finally tee this up after uh, over a year or so, but uh, I've been watching you from afar for for many years and uh, it has been an absolute honor and privilege to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ram. I also want to appreciate you. I apologize for taking this long. Hat, hat off to you, hat tip. Your perseverance, your patience, and your generosity has been wonderful. I had a really good time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening this far, dear Giants. I really appreciate you hanging out with Chris and I. Hopefully, you were able to grab many actionable insights. Please send Chris a hi and hello over on his Instagram. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. His handle is the Chris Doe. Now, if you're enjoying these episodes, I do have one ask, if I may. I'd really appreciate an iTunes review from you please head to giantthinkers.com slash podcast review. It'll take you straight to it. I read and appreciate every single one and it does help get the show in front of more people who may need these stories and life lessons from our world-class guests. Speaking of, a little teaser for our next guest. She is widely recognized for her role as a dragon and venture capitalist for 13 years on the multi-award winning TV series Dragon's Den in Canada. She is the general partner of District Ventures Capital, a $100 million venture capital fund focused on helping market, fund, and grow entrepreneurs and their companies in the food and health space. She's a three-time best-selling author and accomplished public speaker. I can't wait for you all to hear this. Subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app and you'll be notified as soon as this goes live. For any questions regarding the podcast or anything at all, the best way to reach me is on Instagram. Please send me a message via my handle, the Giant Thinker. Lastly, I'll leave you with a quote that I loved from Chris, who said, the number one most valuable non-renewable resource that you have is your time, period. And if you can pay someone else to do something that costs less than it costs you to do it, you should pay them.